0: Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley, and we are continuing. It is 3 6 2022, and as I said, we're continuing our service with the thought of the week and prayer.
1: And here we have the thought of the week, looking we opening quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, among them being the the lost, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were born, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The sin nature seeks to influence us through our desires and thoughts. Many know about desires which are expressed through cravings and lust. As unbelievers, the sin nature integrates with our human nature. All of the decisions we make as human beings are filtered through our fallen nature. As a result, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10 In some ways, our pseudo- morality is violated by unbridled lust. What we are blind to is that all of our thoughts are also from the sinful nature. Many see themselves as the captain of their ship, able to make their decisions, good and bad, as they please. However, all of our choices, thoughts, motivations, and decisions are firmly under the sin nature's authority. We simply do not realize this and insist that some of what we do must be acceptable to God. If it's good for us, then it must be good for God, is our reasoning. Without the saving work of God, we are slaves to our fallen natures. God rejects everything that comes from a fallen man, that comes you know, comes from a fallen man, and sees him as unrighteous, lost, and totally depraved. Even after we are saved by grace, we are not free from the sin nature's deceptive thoughts. If we do not heed the command to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we will never know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will from Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Well, I'd like to offer some commentary on the thought of the week, if I may. Um, it is packed with information, and information that, that should make it clear that by um, having this condemned sinful nature as having authority over us, nothing that we do is going to be pleasing to God. What is pleasing is not the work to conquer us. It. it is not our ability or what we might think of being painters of our own masterpiece, and which I have heard and sound profound, but it is not that. It is simply that we trust God and his work is our rest. Our souls can find the rest we've been searching for, a salvation that cannot be worked for. As we sometimes say, salvation is not a behavior modification program. It's simply, very simply and gracefully, a matter of belief and trust. Growth, the renewing of your mind, doesn't come until after salvation. The door of salvation is, is already unlocked, and entry is so easy. Um, it, Like I said, it's just a matter of trust. And believe, and that's it. That's what God is requesting of you. Now, once you are saved, it doesn't mean that the sin nature goes away. It doesn't mean that automatically you start doing everything godly. It just means that you have an opportunity now to take advantage of your new nature, that you have slavery to the same nature is over. And now you can be saved transformed by the renewing of your mind and that's where you can commit yourself to doing the work that pleases God. And now we'll go to day four of the prayer. Amen.
2: Uh, thanks for Do anyone have any special prayer requests?
0: Yeah, just for those of us who are sick in our body, our local church and obviously the the goings-on in the world as well.
2: <clears throat> All right, let's to the of question. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to pray for those, Father, we pray for those, Father, who are elders among us, Father. We ask you, Lord, to look over us as we are in the world, Father, so you, are, so you will be patient with us, Father, as we learn your word, Father. We ask you, Lord, Heavenly Father, to look over those who are in need, Father, we ask of you, Lord, on this 6th day of March, Father, that you will protect us, Father, while we are here, Lord. So as we continue to do your word as a pastor, Father, and you will be pleasing to us, Father, as we spread your word, Father. Father, we ask you to let the Spirit teach us of all wisdom and truth, Father, so as we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so we can actually grow, Father, and learn from you, Lord. As so, us says the word. Father, we ask in
0: your name, Father, and your Son, Father. In His name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave, and Dwight. Thank you as well. Um, we're we're moving forward in our verse of seventeen ten. Uh, I'm just going to pick up to, in the context of where we left off, and um, but we will just review by reading the verses that went beforehand. So John 17, 1, we'll get to verse 10. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. them, So that's the verse we're at, verse 10, and we have some notes. We're going to take a look uh, in our notes. Often, when I think about the magnitude of God, it reminds me of the minuteness of man. This verse has always captured my attention. What is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. that's Psalm 8.4. In every area, man is not in the same ballpark as God. I often wonder, just like the psalmist, why does God want to have fellowship with us? I can certainly tell you what is attractive about God, but what does God see as attractive in man? I'm not sure it is good for to go on thinking like this, excuse me. What I must understand is we are made in the image of God. And as we understand more about the father's plan, we can see how that can be significant. We can see why the creation of man is necessary and satisfies the eternal purpose of God. So we 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 really covered a lot last week. We did. We did a good job and and going through some of the thoughts here. And we we're not we can't obviously. We can't repeat everything we did last week. But that's why we've recorded it. So hopefully it is something we can go back when we need to. But we're going to go to where we left. Oh, well, let's talk about what we said. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. We took that first phrase and we, we did it from, we, we, we talked about it from the standpoint of eternity past. And uh, this, is, this is the plan that, uh, you know, these first few points dealt with. And then we, we progress down to point B, where it says, For Christ and the Father, how does mutual possession work? Because <clears throat> if a person says, All I have is yours, all you have is mine. So they mutually possess what the other has. Now, we already said this is voluntary. Now, if you think about demon possession as is, is, uh, something that's counter- to mutual possession, where a demon possesses an individual, sometimes against the, the person's will. Yeah, the the person is decidedly against it. Like, for instance, we saw where the demon was, or demons were causing a person to cut themselves, or even to be throwing themselves into fire. Obviously, that is not the person's will to do that but it is the destructive, reckless nature of the demons. So in this case, God possesses Christ, and Christ possesses God. And we're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, here. He's saying that this is true of him. All that I have, Christ says, belongs to the Father. And all that the Father has belongs to me. So we had to go through and understand some of the uh, ways that this could be understood or should be understood. And we tried to give some scripture to help us understand uh, what mutual possession is all about. And why do we need to understand this so much? Because Christ said it, first of all. It's He's praying to the Father. He's not saying to the disciples, let me teach you this. He's saying, this is what we have. This is the relationship that we have. All you have is mine, and all I have is yours. And this is not the only place this scripture says this. It's very, it's out there. So we need to understand how that works. So that's what we took time to go through and understand. And as I said, it, I could really talk about this much more, but I'm just, I tried to break down some of the ways that this should be understood. And I took each phrase, all I have is yours. And then I took the other phrase, all you have is mine. And hopefully you understand it from that. And did I answer all of them? Is is there more to say? Absolutely, there's more to say. Much more. But we can't say it all in one day. And uh, obviously we split this up and we take our time. But it it is a matter of us... um, Taking one step at a time. So this, this, where we ended up, I'll just go to point seven. This is point B. And then seven, it says, And all you have is mine. The father-son metaphor teaches us about adoption. And this is where we left off, Roman style. So when we talk about adoption, uh, <clears throat> Christ is the son that the fa- so, why do we say he's the son? Uh, because in the role of a son, and when we're talking about Roman-style adoption, Christ inherits everything that the father has. But because of what mutual possession says, it takes that analogy to another place. And it says, not only does Christ inherit all that the father has, but all that the father Uh, what the father uh, has in this side of it is he he inherits all that Christ has. So mutual possession doesn't work in the reverse uh, when you're just talking about the Roman-style adoption. And so I tried to explain what the Roman-style adoption was. And I said it's the greatest transfer of wealth and power. Now, when we think about a child at an adoption agency, being adopted, we don't think about the greatest transfer of wealth and power. We don't. I'm dramatizing it a little bit because I'm trying to make the point that there's something big here in adoption. When Christ says, so when we have father-son mentioned here, that's what's going on. It's not just, well, you know, he's my son. You know? It's more than that. And the verses that are speaking of all you have is mine, all those verses that talk about all that belongs to the Father is mine. Uh, he says that in John 16, uh, sixteen, fifteen. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I'm telling you. And we'll get to why he's telling us more importantly. But just notice, before we even understand mutual possession in us, which is a truth, we need to understand it in Christ and how it worked with the Father because that relationship is what we have now in the church. The relationship that Christ had has been parlayed to us. So now we have it. And John 20 through 23 is, is perfect evidence of that. So, uh, So it's the greatest transfer of wealth and power. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um so there's a let me see where is it here so Romans eight seventeen and eighteen. Let's look at that one first. We're taking our time. Romans eight seventeen and eighteen says, <clears throat> Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Now that heirs of God right there. <sighs> is the greatest transfer of wealth. I don't have to remind you of Colossians 2, 2 and 3, where it says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So, so there's two things happening there. One is the fact that we're heirs of God. We're not heirs of Christ, We're co-heirs with Christ. There's a big difference there. So to say that we're heirs of God is the same as what Christ is. Christ is an heir of God. When he says all things that the Father has are mine, that's the same thing he's saying. But this verse is saying we now are in the same position as Christ. I don't know how that can be. I don't know why Paul wrote that. But I believe it. I trust that what he has told us there is absolutely true. And just imagine, we would say, we're in Christ. He's our Lord. Why should we try to put ourselves equal with him? We can't, really. Can we? Yes, we can. Because this is what the scripture says. It says it right here. It didn't say that we were we are heirs of Christ, it says we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs means we stand side by side with Christ and inherit what the Father has given us. Now, I could read it to you in another way in Ephesians, where it says that he blessed us in the heavenly, heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. I could read that in Ephesians 1, 3. And even though the next verse says, for he chose us in him, it's still what happened when he chose us in him and how we got in him doesn't make us under Christ. It makes us co-heirs with Christ. So that's interesting to note in that. But then the, the sufferings part is mentioned in 18. Let's keep reading. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So let's look at this just for a second here. Just think about this. Our present sufferings not worth the glory, not worth comparing with the glory. So it's not about a suffering for blessing. We did not suffer for this blessing. He chose us in him. We didn't do anything. Because we are in Christ, God is the one who did something, not us. All we did was accept the call. So when we say it's the greatest transfer of blessing, let's think about this. That, that is wealth. To inherit is wealth. If somebody told you a billionaire rich uncle passed away and in his will he left everything to you. So then you show up at the attorney's office, you're sitting down at the big table and all. What do you expect? He was a billionaire and he left everything to you. So, so it doesn't mean you have it when you're sitting at that table, but there is a transfer of all of that wealth to you. And it was a decree by him his last will and testament, that you receive, the wealth that he's getting ready to transfer. And by the way, I should add, Bible talks about it as unsearchable wealth. Wealth that can't even you can't even get to the bottom of it in Scripture. So we we'll, that's wealth from God's perspective. But anyway, until that billions of dollars is transferred to you, I keep making it bigger. I know. Until that's transferred to you, then you're not a billionaire. But when it is, you are, in fact, a billionaire. That's a great transfer of wealth. Even a billionaire is not so much a big deal today. Isn't that interesting? And it's not inflation either. But that is what I mean by a transfer of wealth. And this is what, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing So we're not talking about the suffering for blessing where we are sharing Christ's glory. He's talking about the glory that will be revealed in us. And not some of us, all of us. And so I think that's exactly where Paul is going with that thought. So hopefully you get that. And then, um, so that's the wealth. And then Ephesians 1 18 and 19 puts a cap in it and it helps us understand everything that we have. Here it is on both sides of it. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now when he says the hope, even though we have these things, hope means we are absolutely confident that we will have them. That's the word. It's a Greek word. is elpis, and it doesn't talk about uncertainty. It talks about certainty, which is a little different from the way we use hope today. Somebody says, um, yeah, "I went on an interview, and did you get the job?" You know what you say? I hope so. Doesn't mean you know for sure you're going to get it, but you, it is your hope that you will. You know, you might, and you might not get it. That's how we think about hope today. But that's not the Greek word elpis. It means you are absolutely confident that what God promised, He will deliver. So, so He says in Ephesians one eighteen, eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Something you didn't know about, but in order you may know the hope to which He has called you. And here it is, the riches of His glorious inheritance and in His holy people. So the, the 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 riches are related to our inheritance which is why I gave you that silly analogy about you inheriting billions, right? So it's, it's related to the greatest transfer of wealth. And what is that in terms of? Inheritance. Okay, so that's one side. Right? And then the other side of adoption is verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. So we said his greatest transfer of wealth and power. You saw the wealth. In verse 18, you're getting ready to see the power in verse 19 and following. Where it says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every t- every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So this is this really... Are we raised? He's talking about us. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 says it another way. It says that we have been seated, raised up and seated with him in the heavenly realms. So, of course, I didn't cover all that right there but in the verses, but it's there. Just keep reading. So we're going to get back to the notes because we've got a lot to cover, and hopefully some of it will be redundant. Point C. And all you have is mine. So we're still thinking about what Christ is saying. By all that the Father has belongs to him. It's mine, he says. The disciples belonged to the Father because he chose them to be in Christ, bringing them into union with the Father and the Son. So this is what effectively happened. The Father chose the disciples and... When we say chosen, he chose him for what? <clears throat> to be in this critical new dispensation as the founding members of the church. And we look at the church is, has uh, Christ as the foundation with along with Christ is the apostles and prophets. We get that from Ephesians 2.20. So when it says that all you have is mine, Christ is really saying that whatever belongs to me is now yours. What belongs to Christ? We already covered that in some of the previous verses, where Christ gave everything over to the Father. What did Christ have? His life. Christ, the Father was able to to use Christ to reconcile the world to himself. He was able to speak this Uh, eternal purpose and introduce it to the disciples and help them help to prepare them through the person and access that Christ has as a human being I mean we think of thinking about talking to God and we pray right but when you talk to Jesus the person the man literally you were talking to the father Jesus said don't you know me Philip Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You've been talking to the Father. You're talking to the Father right now, Philip. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that this thing is going on, that the Father is in me? Don't you believe it? So that spiritual dynamic was going on in Christ. Yeah, so when you you think about that, the father started this by choosing certain ones by name. He didn't just say, "Well, whoever happens to step up at the point at this point in time will be fine." No, he picked them specifically. He knew. And Luke chapter six, we read that, is very explicit that it wasn't random, but he gave them by name. And he even didn't he said Simon, not any Simon, but the son of this one. Not any James, but the son of this one, right? So it was very specific persons that the Father had in mind. And Christ says, yep, all the ones you chose, I let them know that those are the ones you chose. And they have accepted your word. They understood it, right? I'm just giving some of the background. Yes, we went over all this stuff, but it' a good... A reminder of this helps so a couple of verses that i add to this is uh, john seventeen twenty one, which says that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me so when you look at what we were talking about how uh, christ is saying all you have is mine and and all this, all you have is mine. Part is where the Father is able to come down from heaven in the person of Christ, who is the image of God, and represent Himself and His interests in the world. That is exactly what happened. The Father came and represented His interests. What what are His interests? His eternal purpose, which He had hid in Himself before time began. And Ephesians 1.4, how did he do it? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us. That's how. It was the Father's choice. It didn't say it was the Son's choice. It didn't say it was the Holy Spirit's choice. It says it was the Father's choice. And the choice is specific, as I said, not random, not corporate, but it's specific by name. And then the, that specificity comes and is transferred to us, as we already covered last week. My prayer is not for them alone, in John seventeen twenty. What do you mean, not for them alone? You mean it's for us too? You mean what you said to the disciples is also for us? Yes, it sure is. What you said to the about the disciples covers <clears throat> what is also about us. Well, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And then it tells you more specifics about who we are, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in... Well, that's the same relationship. That's a result of the baptism of the Spirit, that we can be in Christ and Christ can be in us. But that that's what the baptism of the Spirit effectively does. It, it unites us to the person of Christ so that what is true of us is now true of Christ. And what is true of Christ is now true of us. right? So, so, the, so it goes forward and backwards. But then what we didn't realize in verse 21 was that that relationship was only the basis <clears throat> of facilitating the relationship that we have also with the Father. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Well, that's the same oneness that we have that's the kind of oneness that they now have with you father may they also be in us whoa so it's not just christ it's christ and the father well we saw that in john twenty twenty-three, where he says they will come they the father and christ will come and make their home in us that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. Okay, back to our notes. We got a lot to cover, um, and we're going to move a little quicker, but with purpose. Point number two, and this second part is deep, I would say. Why? Let's just read it. And glory has come to me through them. Well, the thought of this, look, we can understand glory coming to Christ. He's the Lord, and he, he earned it. I mean, he worked. He suffered, bled and died. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows. And we can understand that he gets glory out of this because of his dedication, that his sacrifice, that him being judged for the sins of the world, I mean, on and on. We know there's no question about Christ getting glory. But now, and glory has come to me, Christ says, through them. So that's what we got to talk about. How is it that we now, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, that we now have something to do with Christ getting this glory? So let's dig in a little bit, point A. Glory has come to me. This, let's think about that phrase. We see the same glory we saw in verse 5. Uh, let's look at verse 5 since we are referencing it. It says, and now, Father, glorify me. Here we, here we go. Uh, with the glory, in your presence, right? With the glory I had with you before the world began. We covered that verse And hopefully you recall what we spoke about, this glory or what I could call resultant glory that came from the father's eternal purpose from eternity past. In other words, there was a plan and the achievement of that plan results in glory to the father who planned it and to the son who executed it. They both receive glory as a result of this plan. And and it was the plan that they would receive this glory. The glory is a reference to them planning what God's eternal purpose was, executing what God's eternal purpose was. And it's not even just about the fact that they planned and executed. It's about the fact that they accomplished it. And that they get out of the plan what they were looking for. And that is us. Right? God wanted to call many sons in the glory. So, and this is before the world began. So we're talking about a space in eternity that was before the creation of all things. It was before John one one. It was before Genesis one one, where it says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Well, this time that we're talking about is before that. That's how we have to see it. Now. And he's saying, he's saying to the Father, glorify him. He's talking from the standpoint of his glorified humanity. There's something now, there's an acknowledgement, there's a praise of the plan and what it accomplished. And it's not so much how we did it and all that. I know all those details are very important to us, how it happens. But the fact is that God is able to be satisfied with this plan that is being executed. There's something within God that satisfies him when we think about glorification in this way. God is saying, I'm going to get what I want. I'm saying it crudely. I'm going to get what I want out of this. And sure enough, he does get what he wanted. And what he wanted has to do with us so so let's look at a couple of thoughts here so glory so notice that jesus sees the glory gained through the father's plan even before he has completed the work that's the first point i'm making is is that the confidence of jesus as he approaches this first of all jesus speaks about him and he hasn't finished the plan as I said before, he's getting ready to go meet Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, he hasn't finished the plan yet, but he knows he got to go through some rough stuff ahead. But in all of that, his point, his his motivation is to fulfill the Father's purposes, no doubt about it. He can already he's already speaking to the Father when he's praying to the Father. He's already talking about that is done, <clears throat> and now. You know, I'm at this point where it's a foregone conclusion. I'm not, I'm going to do this, so glorify me in your presence, the same glory we had before the world began, even before He completed the work. Point B: This speaks of confidence, boldness He has in the plan. Do we dare to speak? of the glory we have through him. Do we dare? I mean, just think, it'd be like me saying, well, Father, I'm praying to the Father. And I say, Father, I I have completed my time here on earth and I know I'm going to be rewarded definitely. Now, I know who did that, the Apostle Paul. He got to the end of his life and he says, I know a crown of life is waiting me waiting for me. I know it. And even, not just me, but all those who have also run the race and completed it. So there is an acknowledgement that we shouldn't run from, but we should, it speaks of our confidence in the plan. Not our confidence in us and our ability to do something, but the confidence comes from our ability to trust in the one who gives the power, and who has the plan. Right? Who, we don't do anything in the plan. This is not our achievement, it's his all the way. Even our rewards are not us doing something. It is the Father providing the motivation for us through the means of the Spirit. Not only does he provide the motivation, but the power to execute his plan. He doesn't say, well, okay, do that in your own power. He provides not only the motivation, the want, and what to do, but he provides the power, the influence to do it. Yeah, that, so even our rewards is really, we're being rewarded for our cooperation with the Father's plan, our acknowledgement and agreement to follow and to do what the Father's plan says. So, so this speaks of confidence and boldness he has in the plan. Do we dare speak of the glory that we have through him? John seventeen twenty two says we have this glory. It says it right here. I have given them the glory that you gave me. So, so Christ is asking for the glory because the plan is complete, futuristically. It's not complete yet, but he knows it will be. But then after that, he's saying, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one. As we are one. Again, the reiteration of mutual possession. Uh, that's how we're going to get this glory. It's through mutual possession. It is not through our efforts. We climbed Mount Everest and now we have reached some pinnacle. And we stand there with our arms raised in the sky. Saying, we did it. No, we didn't do it. This is something that was given to us by grace. So... That's something to note, right? So we have been given glory. John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And what are we talking about? What kind of glory? The same glory we've been talking about with this relationship, this whole thing. This context continues to reverberate and echo in our minds through every verse. It's not just over because we read one verse and now we can go to some other thought. It it just builds our understanding of all of these things so then let's keep going second corinthians 3 12 and 13 we definitely have the glory <clears throat> we definitely have it so can we boast about it can we walk around talking about we have this glory well be careful here second corinthians 3 let's look at this verse a couple of thoughts here 12 and 13 Three twelve says um therefore since we have such a hope. Now, hey, remember we talked about hope, right? And we said hope is the absolute confidence of what God has promised. He will definitely deliver. That's for sure. There's no doubt about it. There's no, well, maybe. No, no. He will definitely. And that's what the word means. We already covered that. So since we have this hope, such a hope, not just this hope, such a tremendous hope, we are very Bold. It didn't just say we are bold. We are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Remember what Moses had, what the Israelites had in the old covenant is transitory or temporary. It was. It wasn't supposed to last forever. It wasn't even supposed to be lasting beyond Christ coming and paying for the sins of the world. But they try to perpetuate that Mosaic law so that, because they, well, one of the things is they rejected Christ. They didn't believe that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they rejected him. So they keep looking for another to come and fulfill who Christ is when Christ already came. And so they don't understand that. But it's more than that because now. <clears throat> This verse isn't just talking about Old Covenant New Covenant stuff. This verse talks about the Spirit and what the glory is. We could go back to verse 10. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. The surpassing glory speaks of what we have in the church age. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much more greater is the glory uh, that, which lasts? Uh, so that's why we're very bold because of the glory that we've been talking about like I read it in John 17 22 I have, Christ says I have given the glory you gave me that I asked for in verse 5 you gave it to me because we talked about it that was the agreement I have given to them and that they, and that they may be one as we are one so that same glory belongs to us just like and how do we get it? Christ gave it to us. After he got it, he gave it to us. And, and that's important because that's a part of the Father's plan. If that's not complete, then the, what are we doing here? So the answer is yes, we can speak of it, but we have to be careful and that our speaking does not, doesn't cross over from boldness and confidence to arrogance, got to be executing the plan you got to be doing the plan to to fully understand it now the glory is not going to come obviously from executing the plan you the glory came from being chosen in him but to be knowledgeable about it to know about what you're talking about does come from your persistence and learning and having your mind renewed so you don't want to be arrogant about what you don't know about. You want to be confident about what you do know about. So you, you don't walk around talking about, uh, I got to glory and no matter what, I'm going to have it. And, and, and it takes the focus off of your growth in grace, which is uh, the knowledge of what God has done for you and how he has done it. That's that's all it adds to you. It doesn't add more glory because you... Well, you'll get glory if you share in Christ's sufferings. But it doesn't add to the glory that the Father has in terms of our inheritance. You can't add to that. It's already there. So point C. Let's keep going here. Okay. Um, so be careful that boldness is not arrogance. Okay. How, how would it be arrogance? Because... Uh, You are talking about things you don't know about. You think it's all about you. Point C, the impact of the glory revealed in us is universal. So if we continue with that Romans passage, and I say, what kind of glory is that? Is that any glory? Is that just, oh, well, you know, Father gives us a, a hand clap? No, it's way more than that. So Romans 8, what's the impact of that glory? Let's just read it. So verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So right now, you might be a child of God because you put your faith in Christ and you, as a result, you were saved, you were born again, you were justified, you were righteous and all of that. But who you are in Christ as a result of the baptism of the Spirit and the other ministries of the Spirit, your body is the temple and all this stuff, the indwelling, the filling and the gifting and the hope, all of that is about what we, what has happened to us as a result of our the baptism of the Spirit. So nobody can see who you are at this point. You, you just look like you're just average and you're just doing the things that everybody else is doing. But really? There's something very different about us. And and even though people may not respond to you, when the time is right, this is what's going to happen. the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. It, It impacts the creation. Now, I don't know what we have or can do that impacts the creation in this way. Let's keep reading it. For the creation um, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Think about this for a second. When I think about all that Christ did when he was here on earth, and you would say, whoa, whoa, he did all kinds of miracle signs and wonders. Yes, he absolutely did. But what Christ did was just a foretaste of what would happen later. Christ operated in a very small area of the earth, just a small geographical area he operated in. And the effect that this person had on that area, was tremendous. And I read last week, all these regions of all the places were emptying out their hospitals to find Christ because he could heal them. And it says when they did find him, he healed them all. So everything about Christ was uh, abundant, right? He, there was nothing. And we read at one point, I don't know if it was in Sun uh, the. Thought of the Week or Questions and Answers about Lazarus and how Jesus raised him from the dead and how they didn't understand. and uh, he, he demonstrated his power even over And they knew all of this. And they were upset with Jesus because they knew he had the power to heal Lazarus. And people, even the people around him said, man, this is, this is his friend. And if he would have been here, Lazarus didn't have to die. This is how they saw it. That was their opinion of things. We don't have that opinion. We think about, well, if this, this new drug comes along, and then maybe we might not die of this whatever. But they knew whatever happens, to, Jesus was able to hear, it says, all manner of sickness and disease and nothing. So what power? Even Jesus had power over the wind and the waves, the calm, the sea. So this is what we're dealing with in Christ. But that's nothing compared to what happens when the children of God come. The curse that's on nature. Here it even says that the creation itself was liberated from its bondage to decay. So decay speaks about an ongoing, progressive, chronic Uh, worsening of the environment not only of the environment but that also goes to disease diseases and sickness and and if you look at me and Fred we're looking at this one day how in Genesis the life span of individuals continually just as you kept reading just decreased and decreased even down to the time of Abraham People were living maybe 200 and 150 years, but not like Adam lived, 900 and some years. So it, we saw the decay at work right there. So if Christ is coming, and he, he did come, and he affected the general uh, geographical area that he affected in and, and, and those ways, what's gonna happen? When the children of God come, they will affect not only this world, but the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when you think about that, you might say that does answer in one way the verses where Jesus says, uh, these works that I do, greater works shall you do. Greater, And sure enough, <laughs> the, the sons of God that come, the children of God, come as a result of being in Christ. And the glory that belongs to us will affect the entire creation. So we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So notice, it personifies creation as though it were... And bondage, you know, frustration and all these things. Uh, But how does it get free? Us. Didn't say it gets free through Christ, although we know that that's so. Because we can't even be here because if we're not coming through Christ. But it is us, it says, that liberates the bondage to decay. I hear some background noise. I think, uh, let me just d- double check the phones to see if there's some mute. I'm going to put the phone on mute here. So anyway, let's keep going. So that to me is quite interesting to think about as we go forward. Okay, where are we in our notes? Let's get to it. That was Romans 18, uh, Romans eight eighteen through 21, or we we went to 22. But let's look at 23 not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Well, there it is. We who have the first fruits of the spirit. Oh, that's Pentecost. It's a metaphor talking about what happened at Pentecost. Well, what happened at Pentecost? We didn't bring our first fruits to God. That's what Pentecost is. It's a token to God telling him that, you know, yeah, we're giving you a part, but really you own all. Pentecost was God Giving us what he Paul is turn, is designating here as the first fruits of the Spirit, so that definitely talks about our age, Pentecost. Right? We're the ones who are spoken of in these previous verses as children of God, and then even talks about our attitude toward it and hope in this hope we were saved, and all that. So, we won't cover that, there's a lot more to, to say, but man. I think that verse certainly complements what we were saying earlier. Okay, so let's keep going. That was point C. The impact of the glory revealed in us is universal. And then point D. Just remember this. And this is a quote. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world anymore then I am of the world. So we talked about the boldness that we might have. Be careful a little bit with the boldness because we know it inflames the world. As Christ walked around and uh, did signs, wonders, miracles, they even tried to say his signs, wonders, and miracles were of the devil. They knew there was a power going on, but they just said, well, it can't be God because we're of God. So obviously his must be of the devil. So Christ says, I've given them your word and the word and the word tells us all this stuff about us. What I just read to you was his word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. So that not of the world tells us about who we are as children of God. We are not of the world. We're not. We don't belong to the world. We have been chosen out of the world. This choosing us out of the world is not Israel because Israel was chosen to be in the world, and to be the priest nation in the world. We are not Israel, and we are not of this world. So when we talk about things the way we talk, or call it, we, we talk about what God has given us, the world reacts with hatred. And it had so much hatred, it took, Christ to the cross and crucified him. This hatred. So don't be surprised if the world hates you. Because this can happen as well. And it will be for the same reason. Because I have given them your word. It's not because you're somebody who is a, a nutty person. It's because of I have given them your word. And now they have the things... That you told me from eternity past. The glory, all that. And the world hates him for it. Yeah. Let's keep going. Point E. Glory has come to me, Christ says. Christ is the one who earned and gets the glory. What did, what did we do to get this glory? And this is a couple, move, a couple of verses or thoughts that we should cover. Uh, this is what we did. We simply believed in Christ for our soul's salvation, which is, of course, non-meritorious. That's Ephesians 1, 13 through 15, where it details what, how do we get in Christ, right? We could say, well, what I did to get in Christ and get the baptism was I tarried. I said, Jesus, 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 a lot of times, and I tarried, and then next thing you know, I got this emotional experience, And that's how I got in Christ. That's not what the Scripture says how you got. It tells you how you got in Christ, which we can just read it. Here it is. He says, "And you also were included in Christ." Here it is. When you heard the message of truth, that's the gospel of your salvation. Right? You got to hear the gospel. When you believed, you were. That's an important. The response to the gospel is not, I'm I'm going to do better, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to repent of my sins, I'm going to straighten out uh, some of the things I've done and, and feel sorry about it. What is your response to the gospel? Here it is, when you believed. That is the proper response. You believe. You look away from yourself, and you trust in the Word of God that was just revealed to you in the Gospel of your salvation, the message of truth. Your response, you believe. Well, what happened? You were marked. Once that happened, you were marked in Him with a seal, and that's in this age, not in every age, but in this. Because the question is, how do we get in Christ? Right. Right. You were included in Christ when. So, the, so what's happening? You are marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. It's promised because it was promised by John the Baptist. It was promised by Jesus Christ. And sure enough, we received it. Right. And then it goes on and says, who, the Holy Spirit, is a deposit guaranteeing. So now look at this. We talked about boldness. It guarantees our inheritance. It's and an inheritance is the wealth that we talked about, right? Until, what inheritance? We are heirs of Moses. No, no. We're heirs of Christ. No, we are heirs of God. And the fact that we have the Holy Spirit is tangible proof, evidence, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So now, again, the glory again. So, but how do you, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know? I'm just saying. Even there's a lot of ways to know. First of all, we couldn't understand the things that come from the Spirit of God if we didn't have the Spirit. We would say they're foolishness. But also, what is it like? What we, what is it like if you don't have the Holy Spirit? We could talk about it from that angle. And that person says, what do you mean? Can't we just talk about speaking in tongues? No. Well, what is it like if you don't have it? Well, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Uh, And by nature, you were objects of wrath. All of us lived among them at one time, uh, you know, uh, lusting and all that stuff, satisfying the cravings of our sinful nature. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. There's none righteous, not even one. None who seek after God. This is what you were before you got God, the Holy Spirit. Now, because of the baptism of the Spirit, we have changed positions. We can now think in terms of what the Spirit has given us. He can empower us to recognize these truths. So, that's some of the ways you can think about this. And there's a whole lot more things to understand in terms of the Spirit that we could talk about. But we're really running a little late here, so we're, whether we finish or not is not important. But but let's talk about let's Let's keep going. Uh, so what do we have? Um, that was one scripture. And then there's John 17, 22. Uh, simply believe that Christ... Oh, here it is. Uh, glory has come to me. Christ is the, the, the one who earned and gets the glory. What did we do? We didn't do anything but believe. We already saw that. Once we believed in Christ for our soul's salvation, all of these things just happened. John seventeen twenty two says, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. So that is what happened as a result. But that's what we did. Christ earned it. We didn't. Oh, how do we get it? Right? We, we just got it through grace. Point F, once we believed in Christ by the Father's sovereign grace, there it is, that's, that's how uh, Ephesians 1.4 was able to happen. It's because of the sovereign grace of the Father. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. The Spirit did his extraordinary work in us. 1 Corinthians 12.13 <clears throat> says... By one spirit, were we all baptized into one body, that one body is the body of Christ, by one spirit and it, and it says not some of us, this is something that happens for every person that believes in Christ. You are baptized into uh, christ that's That's how it works that's and then there's Romans six, three and four I'll read that Romans six. Three and four. let's do it. So it says, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you cannot know this, you got to learn this, not something that is automatic. All right? So I'm looking at our time. And I realize we don't have time to finish everything we want to talk about. So that's okay. We'll continue with this thought next week. And so glory has come to me. And so we're going to deal with this through them. And that helps us understand why uh, Christ's glory depends on us. It sounds crazy to say, doesn't it? But it's true. Christ's glory depends us he said it literally i don't even really need any more proof or explanation i'm just saying it sounds odd but christ is saying and glory has come to me through them well we didn't give him the glory but it is through us that christ gets the glory we're going to talk more about it next week as we go but there's a lot of things to consider and i hope you don't mind me taking time to consider them so we'll take our sweet time, and allow God to just develop all the detail that he wants, at least as we can muster. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this time we have, this opportunity to delve in, to to focus our attention on your word, uh, not just to look at it on the surface, but to try to get behind what the Spirit is trying to tell us in these particular verses. Hopefully, Father, there was something here that someone can use or someone can resonate with and and understand you better and know you better. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.